And that's not my intent today. I want you to know up front, I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings. I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm not trying to get down into, into, your, into your business. I'm not getting personal. I, don't have, I have nobody in mind as I speak today. Nobody. This, this is about really what God's trying to do in my life, reminding me of some things. And I think he wants me to pass some of that on to you over the next couple of weeks. And so, please, don't, don't take offense at what's said. It's not about you personally. It, it might apply to you, but I'm not thinking about you as I share it. Are we good? You understand where I'm coming from? Okay, good. Because here's how I'm going to start. Have you taken a look at the spiritual landscape of our country lately? Have you had one of those conversations? You're talking to somebody, they tell you something, and you're like, you say out loud or they say out loud, what are people thinking? Why would anybody think that's the right thing to do? You've read those headlines too, right? You've read those stories. You've had those things happen to you and other people. You're just like scratching your head like, what in the world has gone wrong with us? There you go. That might be a good, a good start right there. Have you taken a look at the spiritual landscape of our nation lately? Statistics tell us, polls tell us, that 53% of our nation's people say they seldom or never go to a religious service. They never darken the doors of a church. As a matter of fact, you may not know this, Shelby County is the least evangelized county in Alabama. We have churches everywhere, but only about 19% of Shelby County's population is in a church today. 80% virtually have little or nothing to do with any kind of religious programming, religious ministry, worship service, church, synagogue. There are now as many people in America who claim no religion as there are evangelical Christians in America. 23% of us are evangelical Christians. We say we believe in Jesus Christ as the only way to be saved. And there are 23% of us in America that say, I got no religious preference at all. As a matter of fact, I don't care anything about religion. Only half of our pastors believe in biblical truths. Half. 50% believe in biblical truths like the sinless perfection of Christ. Or the moral truth, the absolute truth contained in the Bible. Only about 50% of the pastors who are preaching in our pulpits this morning in churches like this believe that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. That means that only 17% of those who sit in the church pews and seats like you do, only 17% of the people who attend church claim to be Christians believe that the Bible is the source of, of morality, that Christ alone is the only way to the Father. Think about it, 17%. You may have read this book or you may have heard this phrase before, but I'm thoroughly convinced that most of the people who attend, who attend church, churches like ours, around this country today, they've gathered in the name of Jesus, they say they believe in Jesus, but they live as if he doesn't exist. They're, for all intents and purposes, Christian atheists. Christian atheists. About 4,000 churches in America will close this year. 4,000. So if you're concerned about the spiritual landscape of our nation today, it's with good reason. There's a lot to be concerned about. Maybe like me, you feel a growing discomfort with the direction our nation is going in. Maybe like me, you're alarmed at the spiraling deterioration of our culture. Human trafficking in Brookside, Alabama. Did you read that headline this week? There's a lot of stuff going on in Calera, Alabama, that if you knew what it was, I, I hope you never get to sit on a grand jury in Shelby County Courthouse, the Sh Shelby County jury system. You will be amazed at what's going on in your neighbor's homes. We are on a spiritual decline, a moral decline. Does it bother you to see so many who name the name of Christ drifting further and further away from God? 
further and further away from His Word, further and further away from His righteousness, and you see them embracing more and more the philosophies and the doctrines and the lifestyles that the Bible warns us will lead to our death and destruction, does that bother you? You should be. You should be. What are we supposed to do about it? We see, we see the world literally flushing itself down into the, into, the, into, the, into the toilet. What are we supposed to do about it? I had that question yesterday at a pastor's breakfast I was at. One of the brothers looked at me and he said, Mark, what do you think the answer is? That's what I want to talk about today. Because this conversation has been going on in different places. In, in my own mind, you have those conversations with yourself? And I've had conversations with some of you about it. I've had conversations with other pastors. And the Lord is really just, he's telling me, this is what you need to do about it. Some people say, oh man, just stick your head in the sand and pretend there's no real problem. Some people say, well, let's just cloister ourselves up. Let's just gather together in little Christian huddles live in our Christian ghettos, and keep the world outside of it. And we'll stay here, we'll keep them there, and we'll never intersect. Some people say, let's take to the streets, and let's wage a political and cultural war with rallies and protests and battles on social media. That hasn't worked either, has it? I don't think ignoring the spiritual and moral decay around us is the right answer. We can't ignore what's clearly obvious. And I don't think riding out the storm in our little holy huddles is going to help much either because we're called to be salt to the earth and light to the world. We should not be hiding our light under a bushel. And if, a salt, if salt loses its flavor, then what good is it? Neither do I believe we can bring spiritual and moral life to, to America through political means, electing the right candidates, putting the right party in, in, in the White House. We can't, we, can't, we can't bring spiritual and moral life to America through financial boycotts and culture wars. It doesn't work, never has. I think what we really need is revival. Amen. I think that's what we really need. We really need a genuine move of God. I, I think our only real option in times like these is to pray for have faith for and work for revival. And that's the, that's the answer that we're given in 2 Chronicles 7.14, where God says to, to, to Solomon, and He's saying to us today, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and then I will forgive their sins, and then I'll heal their land. The only answer, seriously, I believe with all of my heart, just as I told my pastor friend yesterday, the only answer for change in America is for the church to experience revival. A genuine move of God. And when I say the church, I'm talking about people like you and me that name the name of Jesus. And we love to point out what's going wrong with the world. I'm telling you, we've got to take responsibility for that. And let God bring revival to our hearts so that the overflow of what He's doing in us will begin to affect change in others. Ignite, we need to ignite a revival. But it's got to start with somebody. It's got to start with someone. I don't know what you think of when you think of the word revival. Southern folks my age often associate revival with a big tent, loud music, and a sweaty preacher. Got that handkerchief out. Maybe some of you younger folks, you younger Southerners might think of revival as a series of special meetings with a special guest speaker and special music, and that special guest speaker gets up and begs lost people to trust Christ for salvation at the altar call. But over these next two weeks, I want you to think about revival in a completely different way. I want you to think about revival in a completely different way. I don't want you to think of revival as a church event, as a corporate event. I want you to think of revival as a personal experience. As a personal experience. I don't want you to think of revival as a way to save lost people. 
I want you to think about revival in terms of God moving, changing His already saved people. God taking these, His already redeemed people and rekindling their passion for Him. Revival isn't intended to change the world. That's, no, revival is intended to change God's people like you and me. Because when God's people are revived, when God's people get changed, when once again you and I are on fire with a holy passion for God, then God will use us to reach the lost and He will use us to bring change to the world. Look, I've got evidence of it right here in this room. Jen Chapman, less than two years ago, was lost as lost could be. Jen, how did you end up here? Crying out to God. Did you meet? Did, did a friend tell you? Did you see anything, any evidence of what God was doing in other people's lives that gave you hope that God might be able to fix you too? When you got here. All right. When you got here, what did you see? Who, who is it particularly that you saw, man, I want what they got? Chrissy Ash. And now because you've caught on fire with a holy passion for God, you were born again by the Spirit of God, came into the kingdom of God, you've learned to let go of your sin and embrace the life that Christ has for you. Now you're seeing an effect on your daughter. Chrissy, how'd you get here? <laughs> what happened when you got here? How'd you find hope? What sparked that hope in you? What did you see in Cindy that made you think maybe God could do this for me too? And did you see her life matching up with what she said? Did you see Chrissy's life matching up with what she said? You see how that's supposed to work? Cindy has been changed by the power of God. And the overflow of what God has done in her life has now affected Chrissy. Chrissy has affected Jen. Jen is affecting who? You see how this works? Worlds are being changed. Worlds are being changed. That's the point. That's the point. That's the point of this little mini-series, this personal revival mini-series I want to point out. It's not about us having special meetings and praying the fire of God down and me getting all hot and sweaty. And... It's about us getting real with God and letting God do in us what He wants to do so that the overflow will impact others and affect change to the world. Look, about a hundred years ago, a British evangelist named Gypsy Smith was holding revivals all over the world. He was an evangelist doing just a great job for the Lord. And he gained quite a reputation as a man of God who when he came into a town, when he came into a region, really brought revival to that region. Churches caught on fire with a passion for God, and things changed. A man once asked Mr. Smith, he said, how can I have revival? How, how can I have revival? How can I bring revival to my town? How can I re bring revival to my region of the, of the world? Mr. Smith said, do you have a place where you can pray? The man said, yes. Gypsy Smith said, well, I'll tell you what to do. You go to that place. You take a piece of chalk with you. You draw a circle around you with that chalk. And you pray for revival to come on everything inside that circle. 
And when it does, he said, you don't leave that circle until you get revival. And when it does, you'll have revival. And that's what I want you to think about over these next two weeks, next 14 days. I'm going to put a resource in your hand, a devotional that we're going to pass out at the end of service or you can download it. 14-day devotional from a great man of God, A.W. Tozer, talks about personal revival. And I want you somehow to carve out a place in your home or wherever you happen to go pray on a regular basis. I don't want you to stain your carpet with chalk or paint, but I do want you to set aside some time and place yourself in a figurative circle and say, Lord, I need revival. We need revival. My nation is going to hell in a handbasket. My community is falling apart. We need revival, but Lord, bring revival here first. Let your fire fall here first. Bring conviction of sin here first. Our problem is we're trying to fix everybody else out there when we're the ones standing in need of prayer. Does that make sense? So I'm calling all of you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Look, some of you may not even have a relationship with Jesus yet. I understand that, and that's fine. But maybe, who knows, maybe this might be a beginning for you to seek God for yourself. But I'm talking to people who know Christ Jesus. I'm talking, for, uh, I'm talking to my, my brothers and sisters who have walked with Jesus maybe for years and years and years. Maybe like me, you've gotten gray hair living for Jesus. I don't know about you. I'm 59. I've been walking with the Lord since I was 18. There are times in my life where I tend to get calloused and cold toward the Lord. I, I wish I could tell you I was always on fire for Jesus. I'd be lying. And I find myself in need of a personal revival. And I'm asking you, would you seek God for your own personal revival with me? I want to see Kalira changed. I want to see my nation heading in the right direction. 2020 is setting up to be a horrific year. Let's just get honest. We've started with impeachment. We've got an election at the other end of the year. Lord Jesus, what lies in between? I don't know. Frankly, I don't care. Because that election is really not going to change anything. The only one who can change anything is Christ Jesus. And His people surrendering to Him so that He can use them to effect that change. So I'm asking you, crawl into a circle every day. Get that little devotional. Read it. Be challenged. Let the Lord speak to your heart about what He wants to do in your life. And then from the overflow of what He does in your life, let the world around you be affected. Let your family be changed. Let this church be changed. Let this community be changed. Can you imagine what would happen if just 10 or 15 of us got serious about our walk and our talk lining up with the will of God. Can you imagine the change that would begin to take place? Not just in our homes, but in our church. Anyway, let me get back up to the word because I want to I talk a little bit about revival today. I want to talk about revival today. In Isaiah 64, the prophet prays for revival. And here's the setting for it. Many of God's people, many of God's people in this day had been carried away into captivity by the Babylonians. There was only a remnant that had been left behind. God's temple had been destroyed, his people were discouraged and they were depressed. They needed a move from God. They needed a revival. They needed God to do something to change their hearts. Well, the setting today, I believe, isn't all that different from back in Isaiah's day because many of God's people today, I'm afraid, have been carried away into captivity by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The remnant which remains behind is discouraged and depressed. And we're struggling to hang on. We need a move from God just like they did. We need revival. And so the prophet here in Isaiah 64, he prays for revival. And it's, he's, he prays this way. And, and I'm going to break this prayer down and we're going to talk about revival for just a moment. I'm, I'm going to be like a rock skimming, a, you know, when you, when you uh, 
skip stones across the pond. It's going to be like that a little bit today, okay? But I want you to, if you get time, to go back and dig into it a little bit for yourself. But let's read this passage of Scripture together today, and let me just kind of take a stab at it. Let me just kind of tell you some of the highlights of this passage of Scripture. I believe God wants to bring us revival, but it's going to come His way and His time. Let's do it His way, and let's wait for His time. Here we go. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down to make your name known to your enemies and cause the nations to quake before you. For when you did awesome things that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains trembled before you. Since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for Him. You come to the help of those who gladly do right, you, you re, who remember your ways. But when we continued to sin against them, you were angry. How then can we be saved? All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our, our sins sweep us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. Your sacred cities have become a wasteland. Even Zion is a wasteland, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you has been burned with fire, and all that we treasured lies in ruins. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Let's pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus. That you would come down. Come down today in glory and in power. Shake us to our core. Father, I pray for each person represented in this room, anyone who's watching on Facebook. God, I don't care how they hear this. I don't care how they get the message, but may they hear your voice in it. May they hear the, the sincere desire of your heart to revive us again, that we might rejoice in you. I pray that each one of us today, Lord, would have ears to hear what you're saying, eyes to see it, and envision what it is you're calling us to, and a heart to embrace the truth that you give us, to help us live it out, to help us become the light and the salt that You've called us to be. So that our walk and our talk measure up and align themselves with Your will and Your Word. So that we become the instruments of grace and truth that You've called us to be. Taking with us the ministry of reconciliation, urging everyone to turn to God. We recognize, Lord, the time is growing short. We need harvesters in the fields. We need people who take their calling to serve You. We need them desperately. We need them, Father. And they're sitting in this room. And they're sitting in rooms just like this one around this country. We pray that Your anointing would just fall in a fresh and powerful way. You would reignite a zeal and a passion for the Lord in the hearts of Your people. Turn our eyes toward you, Jesus. Helps us set our minds and our hearts on you. Let everything else fade away in the light of who you are. Help us to set our, our, our will on surrendering to your will. Desiring nothing more than your glory. Your fame. We praise you, Jesus. We praise you, Jesus. And I ask, Lord, that you start the revival in me. Start the revival in me. Rekindle the flame in my heart. 
Restore to me the joy of my salvation. I praise you and thank you, Jesus, for being here today. Amen. Okay, really quickly, I know time is of the essence and we're going to share communion in just a minute, but let me share with you some things about revival as it's given to us in this prayer. We, we, we can identify several things that we need to know about revival and how to receive revival when God sends it. First of all, I want you to understand this about revival. Revival is when God comes down. Revival is when God comes down. Verse 1 says it this way, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Revival is God coming down to meet with us. Revival, in other words, is a personal encounter with God. Now, I want you to understand something. God loves to come down and be with His people. As a matter of fact, I would say that may be His greatest desire. He wants to be with us. He wants us to be with Him. He came down as the man Jesus Christ to live for us, to live with us, to live for us, and to die for us on the cross. He come, came down at Pentecost in the form of the Holy Spirit, and He baptized that early church with, with power. He's coming again as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, in the form of Christ Jesus, will return to earth to set up an, an eternal kingdom here among us. God loves to come down to be with His people. And if you go on and study church history and the Bible itself, you'll see that from time to time, in place to place, God has come down to meet His people in very personal and very powerful ways. I would encourage you, the next couple of weeks, Google revivals. There have been some amazing revivals over time. We had one not long ago, a couple decades ago, a little town, a little area just outside of Pensacola called Brownsville. You may have heard about that one. America has experienced the Great Awakening under the leadership of Jonathan Edwards, a second Great Awakening that came in the 1800s. I'm looking forward to a third awakening to take place in our day. God loves to come down and meet with us. He loves to come down and encounter us in personal ways. As a matter of fact, He makes that promise over and over again. For instance, Jeremiah 29 says this, In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for Me wholeheartedly, you will find Me. God loves to meet with us. Don't ever think God likes to stay in His place and He likes for you to stay in yours. That's not what He came to do. We need God to come down once again. We need a personal encounter with God so we can experience a personal revival in our souls. A personal revival that quickens our hearts, reignites our love for the Lord, and rekindles our desire to serve the Lord in our day. A personal revival that will lead to a revival in our families, our church, in our communities, in our world. We need God to come down. The second thing I want you to see about revival is this. It brings change. When revival comes, it will bring change. Just going to touch on a couple of highlights here. Mountains will tremble. Mountains will tremble. Those mountains represent or symbolize obstacles or barriers to the work of God. Mountains of pride, mountains of prejudice, mountains of racism, mountains of injustice and selfishness and partisanship, mountains of anger and bitterness and apathy and indifference. All those mountains, all those obstacles, when God sends revival, those mountains tremble and are moved out of the way. I'm looking at an America I don't even recognize anymore because of the partisanship and the anger that divides us. Who are we? Remember when you used to be able to have a nice conversation with somebody about a difference of opinion? That's a distant memory. That mountain needs to be removed. And mountains like it. When God sends revival, nothing is going to stop Him from moving. Nothing. Nothing can stop God from sending revival when God chooses to send it. When His people cry out for Him to, oh, come down, He's coming. He's coming. Psalm 115.3 says this, Our God is in the heavens, and He does all that He pleases. So, let's get this idea out of our mind right now. Well, it's too broken. It can't be fixed. That's hogwash, man. Mountains will tremble. Nations will quake. 
nations will quake. Nations, often in the Bible, symbolize sinners. People who are not part of the kingdom of God. People who are outsiders looking in. Nations will quake when revival comes. That means when God sends revival, sinners will see things that they can't explain. They will see miraculous things. They will see supernatural things. They will see only God kind of things. They'll see souls saved and they'll see lives transformed. They'll see addicts set free. They'll see families restored. They'll see bodies healed. Listen, we see, I, gotta, I just got to be honest. I think to a certain degree we're already experiencing revival here. We're watching God do things that only God could do. Right? So in a way, we're already experiencing revival here, and it's pretty dang good. But I wonder how much better it would get if we took seriously what God wants to do in sending us personal revival. Look, nations will quake. And I'm telling you, when sinners see these kinds of things, when they see supernatural things, miraculous things, lives changed, families restored, when they see those things, they're going to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit too. Amen, Chrissy? Amen, Jen? You're going to feel the, they're going to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit as well. And they will begin to shake. Maybe not physically. Maybe physically. I've seen that happen. But certainly inside, suddenly, oh my gosh. They're going to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit because they're in the presence, maybe for the first time, they're in the presence of the Lord. And perhaps, God willing, they themselves will cry out to the Lord for grace and mercy and find salvation themselves. Nations will quake when revival comes. When this church is on fire with a passion for the Lord, people are going to want to come see why that church is on fire with a passion for the Lord. That's the way it is with fires, isn't it? Set something on fire, people got to see what's on fire. And I'm saying, Lord, start your fire right here with me. Let me be consumed with a passion for you. The righteous will rejoice. When revival comes, it will bring change. Mountains will tremble, nations will quake, and the righteous will rejoice. Verse 5 says, you come to the help of those who gladly do right. When God comes down and revival comes, the hearts of His people will rejoice in His presence and His power. When God comes down, the hearts of His people will, will, will just be filled to overflowing with thanksgiving for what He's doing. Our mouths will be filled with His praise. Our souls will overflow with thanksgiving. And our hands will be eager to jump in and do the work He's calling us to do. I don't know about you, I want revival, man. Hey, Brian, I am really burning up up here. Are you guys hot? I'm burning up. Thank you. We, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Don't you want revival? I am so tired of going through religious motions. I've had enough of that. And, and I, I'm, I, I would think by this time, walking with the Lord for, you know, 40 years, I, I would have been able to put that behind me and I still find myself sometimes going through the religious motions without any of me really in it. Anybody else with me on that? And I, I said, let's not do that anymore. Let's not be guilty of that anymore. I want revival. I want God to come down. I want a personal re- encounter with the Lord. I want things to change. <laughs> I want to see Kalira Jail emptied. Not because, you know, because the health department says it's too full. I want it emptied because there's no more crime in Kalira. Somebody stole the catalytic converter out of our van. Do you know that? Guys know that? Yeah, we just found out about it. I'm like, how desperate do you have to be to steal the catalytic converter out of a church van? But they did. I want that to be the last catalytic converter stolen in Clear, Alabama. Not because the perpetrator got arrested, but because he got convicted by the Holy Spirit and he said, man, I want to give my heart to Jesus. I don't want to do that anymore. I want things to change. I want every barrier that stands in the way of God to be removed. 
I want sinners. I want to see sinners shaking under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I want to see the righteous rejoicing in the presence of the Lord as they see God doing things they never dreamed they'd see again. I want revival, man. My heart is so hungry for revival. I really want to see God move. What stands in the way? What stands in the way of revival? This prayer gives us an answer to that, and you need to listen to this, and I'm not here to throw condemnation on anybody. I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to anyone. But what stands in the way of revival is our sin. Is our sin. Listen to what Isaiah has to pray about. He says we've been corrupted by our sin. Verse 6 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. We're corrupted by the sin that we hold on to. Too many of us dress up in our self-righteousness and go to church on Sundays. We wrap ourselves in religious arrogance and religious pride and we smugly proclaim our love for Jesus. We go through all the religious motions while all the while when we're all by ourselves, we're living in sin and rebellion, doing what we want to do, ignoring what God has clearly said. It's corrupted us. It's taken our minds off of what we're called to be. Our hearts are distracted by the, the, the glitter and the glitz. We're in love with other things. We say we love Jesus, but we're really in love with ourselves and we're living for ourselves. We've got this veneer of spirituality. We look good on the outside, but on the inside, we're rotten and corrupt. Our righteousness is like filthy rags to God. We claim to believe in God, but come on. Honestly, most of us live as if we don't believe Him. We're corrupted by sin. We're also complacent in our sin. Verse 7 says, No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you. Call a prayer meeting. You may get a couple of people to show up, but that's it. We've gotten so complacent in our pursuits, in our values, in the things we say we hold dear. I wonder how many of us sitting in our churches today across America really sought the Lord this week in the privacy of our own personal prayer closets. No, we wait to Sunday to sing the songs. We wait to Sunday to pray the prayers. We wait to Sunday to read the Word of God. How many of us really dug into the Word to know the Lord better so we could grow closer to Him and become more like Him? How many of us really asked God to help us work through our circumstances? Help me with this, God. But we never asked Him to help us overcome the sins that we're still struggling with. We want Him to fix the circumstances. Just don't touch me. Does that make sense? When James clearly says, it's the desires in our heart that causes us to get into the messes we make. I wonder how many of us are serious about seeking God's face and not just His hand. Come on. I'm guilty, man. I'm telling you. The Lord's been convicting me. We're consumed by our sin. We're corrupted by it. We're complacent in it. And we're consumed by it. Verse 7 goes on to say, For you have hidden your face from us and have given us over to our sins. I'm telling you, folks, our sins are eating us alive. We, we play around with them as if we can manage them. You don't manage sin. You either kill it or it kills you. Our sexual sins are killing our families and our souls. Our love for money and this world's stuff keeps us riding the crazy train of stress and disappointment. Our lust for power and control destroys all hope we might have for healthy relationships in our life. It shouldn't surprise us that God no longer seems to be moving among us like He once did. Our sin and selfishness leave very little time and energy for the Lord to have His way in our lives. I mean, we've sown to the wind and now we're beginning to reap the whirlwind. This, 
just this past week. Just this past week, I read a headline, and I'm just going to throw it out there. It's, it probably doesn't mean much to you, but it means everything to me. The bishops of the Church of England, the Anglican Church, if you will, they publicly apologized for preaching and teaching sexual integrity. They publicly apologized for preaching and teaching that sex outside of a heterosexual marriage is wrong. This is what we've come to. And if you don't think that that's going to have an effect, it already has had an effect, on the religious temperature in England, you're kidding yourself. And we know about the Methodist church and the split that they're undergoing right now because of their stances in some similar issues. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. We're in trouble. We have sown to the wind, and now we're reaping the whirlwind. And that's why we need revival. We need revival. It's not like a want to. It's like need. A desperate need for revival. We need God to come down and meet with us. We need God to come down and change us. And it's got to start somewhere. And it's got to start with someone. And I'm saying, dear God, let it start with me. Let it start with me. What will it take? What will it take for us to experience a personal revival? And this is where the challenge, I'm throwing it out to you. I'm taking the challenge on. I'm going to spend the next 14 days, as best as I know how, seeking the Lord for revival in my life. I'm not going to be praying for you. Well, I'll keep praying for you. I'm really praying for me. Because if the revival doesn't start in me, then it will have no effect on my family and it will have no effect on you. I want you to be praying for yourself. That God would send revival to you. So that God could do in you and through you everything He wants to do. Through the overflow of His work in your life. I'll tell you what brings revival. Prayer. Prayer brings revival. And that's exactly what Isaiah says here. Prayer brings revival. And when you study, and I hope that you do, just Google something. I don't know. Google the... the uh, um, the great Welsh revivals in the past. Google how God brought revival to Scotland under, under the preaching and ministry of John Knox. Uh, read about Charles Finney. Read about uh, Wesley. Read about uh, D.L. Moody and what he used to do. Read about Billy Graham, for crying out loud. He's recent. You know who that is. But you, I'm telling you, wherever, wherever revival broke out, it began as the result of someone or a group of someone's praying. Praying. Charles Spurgeon was probably the greatest preacher who ever lived. He had the first megachurch in world history. Thousands of people would come every Sunday to hear him preach. And he was quick to give credit where credit was due about where the power and the anointing came from when he preached. How it was that sinners would come and bow their, their, their knees at the throne of God and give their hearts to the Lord as he preached. Let me tell you how he did it. He, he said that there were two little ladies in the basement of his church during every service trying out to the Lord for the Lord to use him and move in the service as he preached the Word of God. Guess what? God answers prayer. Maybe we need to develop some kind of prayer team, and that's what you do. You get up in that little room while we're having service, and you, you just pray while the rest of us are sitting here fooling around and, you know, pretending to be spiritual and everything. Anyway, I'm kidding. I'm tired of religious motions, man. Let's, let's do the real thing. Oh, let me go on. I'm, I'm rabbit trails. All right, what kind, of praying, what kind of praying brings revival? First, the kind of praying that brings revival is prayer that recognizes God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty, God's power, God's authority. Verse 8 says, yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. True revival comes as we recognize that God is God and we are not. God is God. We are not. He's the potter. We're the clay. He shapes us. We don't shape him. 
He determines what we do and how we do it. We don't tell him what to do. God's sovereign. And when you pray, you need to recognize his sovereignty. He demands not just a place in our life, he demands preeminence in our life. He calls the shots. We simply say, yes, sir, show me how. It's God alone who commands our worship and our obedience. As we pray, we need to be asking ourselves, am I willing to be and do whatever God has planned for me to be and do? Does a hammer tell a carpenter what the carpenter is supposed to do with a hammer? Chris, you're a carpenter. No. Who's in charge of the hammer? The carpenter's in charge of the hammer. Guess what? You're a hammer. God's the carpenter. He builds his kingdom his way. Does that make sense? Man, I hear people telling God what he's supposed to do. Uh Uh-uh. You say, here am I. Send me. I'm your ambassador. Put words in my mouth to say. I'm an instrument of truth and grace. Show me what I should do to bring healing to the people you've called me to. God's sovereign. Prayer that brings revival remembers God's mercy. Verse 9 says, do not be angry beyond measure, Lord. Do not remember our sins forever. Oh, look on us, we pray, for we are all your people. This is really key. We keep this in mind as we pray for revival, that God desires mercy. God desires to show us mercy. God would rather forgive sin than punish sin. It's what the Bible clearly says. God's will is for none to perish, but all to come to everlasting life. But God, listen, God will not put away sin by forgiving it until we're ready to put it away. Let me say that again. God will not put away sin by forgiving it until we're ready to put that sin away. It's called repentance. It's called repentance. To pray for God's mercy without truly repenting of sin, that's just blatant hypocrisy. To pray for God's mercy without truly repenting of sin, that's just a religious farce. That's going through the motions. To pray for God's mercy without truly repenting of sin, that's a spiritual smokescreen. And I'm telling you, as you get into the presence of the Lord and give Him room to speak in your life, He may start pointing out a thing or two in your life that needs to change. Are you going to argue with Him about it? Are you going to say, yes, Lord, anything but that? Or are you going to say to Him, Lord, my heart's an open book. And if you say I can no longer be part of that, I will put it off. And if you say this is what you should embrace, I will put it on. Colossians 3. Put off the old way of life. Put on the new way of life. Created to be like Christ Jesus. You're going to see revival come when you get serious about the sin remaining in your life. But remember, he's merciful. He doesn't point it out to humiliate you and embarrass you. He's pointing it out to save you and to save others through you. Prayer that brings revival recognizes God's sovereignty, it remembers God's mercy, and it respects God's glory. It's all about God's glory. It's about him, it's not about us. When revival comes, it should never be about what he's doing with me or with you. It's about what God is doing for his glory. When he brings change, he brings the change. When he sets people free, he sets people free. When a message is given and people respond, it's the Lord who's showing the mercy and displaying his grace. It's not about the instrument Does the hammer ever get glory when the house is finished? Look at what the hammer did! Woo! Who cares about the hammer? It's the genius of the carpenter that built the house. It's about his glory. It's about his glory. 
Verses 10 through 12 look back to the day when God's glory was the focus of all the activity and the worship of His people. But those days are gone. Your sacred cities, it says, has become a wasteland. Boy, I look across America, 4,000 churches this year will shut the doors. Our holy and glorious temple where our ancestors praised you have been burned with fire and all that we treasured lies in ruins. I'm telling you, as I, as I survey the spiritual landscape of America, I, I find myself wondering if we're not in the same kind of situation today. Churches that were once filled with people sharing testimonies and singing praises to God like we did today, oh, they're closed down today. Fallen in. Great religious organizations that once stood up for God now bow down to the altar of compromise. Our churches and our homes desperately need God back in them again. We need to see God's glory as the prime directive of our life again. Prime directive. All you Star Trekkies. Prime directive. The only thing that drives you and motivates you, the only reason you get up in the morning, the only reason you get good rest at night, the only reason you do what you do, the only reason you say what you say, our prime directive is the glory of God. Whatever you do, whether it's eating or drinking, do it all for the glory of God. Man, we need to rediscover that. We need to rediscover that my prime directive for life, everything I do, everywhere I go, whatever I say, it's because I want God to receive the glory for it. When we pray, we ought to be praying for the glory of God to be on on display. Not for our tithes and offerings to go up. Not for the membership to increase. Not for the building to be built. We want God to be glorified. Whether He builds the building or not. Whether He sends in the money or not. Whether He puts more butts in the seat. Whatever he wants, whatever he wants, whatever brings him glory, whatever he wants. This is revival. This is revival. This this prayer gives us a description of revival. It happens when God comes down to meet with us, his people. Revival brings change to everything. Revival demands a willingness on our part to deal honestly with the influence of sin in our lives. And it requires us to pray in faith, trusting that God will show us mercy as we seek his glory. And I'm asking you just for the next two weeks, the next 14 days, will you join me in praying for God to come down and bring with him a personal revival to your soul? Will you do it? Praise God. I wasn't sure how you'd respond. (laughs) You see, I want a personal revival that he can use to ignite an ever-expanding revival in our families, our communities, and our nation. I want him to start with me. With me. With me. Start here. Start here. And start now. Bring revival to us, Lord.